Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome to CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. I'm a Navy veteran, and every week I get a chance to look at the issues of the day through the eyes of my fellow military vets. This is the news and stories about the veteran lifestyle. This is Ion Veterans. Now, for the rest of this hour, we're going to talk about a fascinating book and an even more fascinating veteran Baghdad Underground Railroad, Saving American Allies and Iraq. Now, if you've never heard the harrowing stories of Iraqi interpreters, then stick around. This book and our conversation will show you exactly what it was like on the streets during some of the toughest fighting of the Iraq War and how we couldn't have gotten through it without these Iraqis who literally put their lives on the line. Our guest is retired Army Colonel Steve Miska. With three combat tours, he's led troops for over three years in Iraq. He's also worked in the White House, serving as Iraq Director for the National Security Council staff. And he's the Executive Director of First Amendment Voice and one of the leading consultants on national security and counterterrorism issues in the country. Welcome to the show, Colonel. How are you? Phil, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Man, my buddies that have written books about combat uh, cannot say enough about the role of the interpreters. Uh, you know, we reference, we both know, Marine Corps veteran Major Scott Husing, And, um, you know, his book, Echo and Ramadi, talks a great detail about the appreciation he has for the Terps. There's the famous Johnny Walker, who worked with the Navy SEALs, and uh, his book, Codename Johnny Walker. But uh, I really thank you for writing this from, uh, about a subject that a lot of people don't know about. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, interpreters are, are cultural eyes, ears, and mouthpieces. I mean, they really, in many cases, save our lives. They point out IEDs and uh, give us vital information. Um, but in even in, I go into the book about it, you know, they're, they keep us from doing stupid things culturally too, right? And so we don't understand the culture as well as they do. And, and they're the, the folks who are guiding us uh, along the way. Let me set the stage here from a little excerpt from the summary of your book here. Uh, but it says, uh, in 2007, Iraq was in the midst of violent sectarian cleansing. Colonel Steve Miska led a team within 2nd Brigade 1st Infantry, known as Dagger Brigade, 
Uh, you established an underground railroad from Baghdad to Amman to the U.S. for dozens of Iraqi interpreters facing near certain death at the hands of death squads that hunted down and slaughtered interpreters and their families. And in the book Baghdad Underground Railroad, you offer a stunning first-person account of how you and your teammates worked to overcome not only getting them out of the country, but overcome policy failures and broken promises to protect America's most reliable combat partners. And um, the stories cannot be told often enough because I think the average American looks at you know the war in Iraq and, and, and thinks it's like us and them. And that's not the truth, man. There were so many heroes that are almost similar to our own kind of colonial era people, people that were just sick of the crap and said, okay, I'm going to stand up and fight. Uh, give me an in-depth understanding of the ways in which the foreign interpreters supported the U.S. missions. Sure. Yeah. They, I mean, these are guys who were on patrol with me every day, Phil. They, uh, they rolled out the gate. And so they would uh, let us know if they heard about uh, possible IEDs. They would keep us abreast of trends going on. I had um, a full-time team and it took me a while to convince my unit to do this. Uh, this was on my third tour when I went back. I, I got the bonus plan. I spent 40 months in Iraq. Man. And um, I, uh, I had a full-time team sitting in it, it, uh, basically a, an intelligence cell is what I called it. But it was unclassified. It was all listening to Iraqi radio, watching Iraqi television, monitoring Iraqi uh, social media. And that information, after we adopted it and we integrated it into the system, that became 70% of our intelligence briefings every day before we, we went out on patrol because it was so vital to understand the contours of the, the culture and what was happening in the city. So um, these are folks we could not do our job without. And uh, that's why it's such, there's so much passion in the veteran community right now revolving around the Afghan withdrawal because we don't want to leave those vital partners behind. Um, they're, you know, our ethos is very much leave no one behind. And we don't think about it as Americans when we go into combat that way. We're, we're thinking about, you know, our brothers and sisters on our left and right. But then we get there and we meet these amazing Iraqis or Afghans and we share risks. Many times they share more risk than we do. Their families are in the mix and uh, getting threatened potentially. And so um, it's just super dangerous for them. They're considered collaborators in many quarters. And uh, so there, there are very few safe havens for them. And they ended up in Baghdad at the time of the story. They lived with us 24-7 on a base and only about every month or so went home to, because it's a cash-based society, they had to bring money home to cover their families. Mm. Yeah, that's actually getting into kind of where I wanted to go next, and that was sort of a, a like a deep look at how it worked. Okay, so from my understanding is like there's the FOBs, right? The forward operating bases, and they're the insulated areas that are all sandbagged and uh, you know kind of reinforced to house our troops. That's where we live. That's where we eat. That's where yeah. we sleep. Uh, that's where we plan. And then every day as part of the battle plan would be, you would go out and you would walk through the town. You'd be assigned an area to secure. You'd look for the bad guys. Maybe you'd have specific missions and intelligence that said there's, you know, high value targets for the HVTs in a certain area that you would go out and try to eliminate. 
sometimes it was killer capture. Sometimes it was just to go out and, you know, watch and, and, and observe, but either way on the daily, you had to walk outside the wire. Would they live on the fob? Because if they're going to and from our base every day, they're pretty easy to spot as a mark and the bad guys wouldn't take too long to kill them if they saw them going to work every day on an American post. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. So they ended up in Baghdad uh, sleeping on a base with us. We had a small U.S. base. There were only just over 100 Americans. And it was a, we called it a fob within a fob, right? It was a little U.S. base inside of a very large Iraqi base. And it, there was a lot of complexity in that environment because it was a religiously significant area. Kadamiya is um, a pilgrimage location for Shia pilgrims. And um, it also had the Ministry of Justice prison where to conduct capital punishment. It had a national police division detention facility that could house up to 300 prisoners. And then it had uh, an Iraqi army brigade holding facility as well. So there was a lot of complexity in that realm of of, uh, just paying attention to what was going on. Um, And our interpreters were key to understanding that we would, um, you know, they would go with us out the gate or inside the gate if we were meeting with Iraqi personnel and help us make sense of it. And I personally, because I was going into sensitive meetings, my interpreter was an American citizen who had a security clearance, but I always had an Iraqi, um, we called him category one, uh, meaning they're a local national, no security clearance. They would go with us because I didn't want to be in the meeting and let's say my soldiers are outside and they have to interact, but they don't have an, an interpreter to interact with the local population or wherever we were. And so we would always bring two on patrol with me um, because I wanted to make sure everybody could interact and understand what was going on. Hmm. It was just vital. It was so lethal in that environment. Um, and just to put that in context, Scott, for for your listeners out there, you know, we were we were finding um, it just in our area of Northwest Baghdad, 275 bodies a week in the gutters uh, that had been tortured in the streets. Um, there were torture houses that we kept hearing about and, you know, people on patrol or Iraqis would come in and talk about screams all night long. Um, in Iraq at the time, if you look at the whole country, there were over 3000 casualties a month. And so to put that on a scale that we all understand, that's a nine 11 every month inside of Iraq. That was how uh, just dangerous it was. And if you were working alongside the occupiers, the Americans, uh, you were high risk. And many of those interpreters did not even tell their families what they did for fear they might inadvertently disclose it to the wrong individual. And then they'd have militia knocking at their door or kidnapping their kids or their parents or whoever. So it was uh, really dangerous. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and this hour we're discussing the book Baghdad Underground Railroad, the story of Iraqi interpreters by retired Army colonel, combat veteran, 
and former Iraq director for the White House National Security Council, Steve Miska. Now we'll jump back into the part of the interview where we're talking about the bravery of these Iraqi interpreters, but also some tough questions about the nature of the war itself. I always hear from Americans that have never been in the military, why do we solve their problems? Like, how come they can't just fight their occupiers? How come they can't fight the Taliban? Or how come they can't fight their own Al-Qaeda? Or how come they can't fight ISIS themselves? It's their neighborhood. It's their background. We did it against England. You know, we did all that ourselves. How come they're not doing that over there? Are these interpreters evidence that there are those Iraqis and those Afghanis that are willing to step up and fight? Yeah, I think, you know, early on in the conflict, you know, the Saddam is overthrown. There was just this tremendous hope and this idealism that drove interpreters and others to to join us in um, trying to carve out a future for their country. And what, you know, I think as the situation grew more lethal at, and we made some strategic errors in that that plan, you know, uh, de basically anybody at the senior levels of the Ba'ath Party, which many were the technocrats that actually ran the, the country um, when they got dismissed, when we disbanded the Iraqi army and sent them all home. Uh, <laughs> that was sort of a, a self-made uh, insurgency right there because they didn't have a job anymore. What were they going to do? Mm. And, um, and there were a lot of weapons in the country. So Al-Qaeda took advantage of that, and it became, you know, it was already a complex space. I think Saddam had just kept it in a bottle, and uh, those complexities, those divisions came out in full force when he was removed, and we didn't have the force to be able to contain it. Um, We had a very small force there relative to the size of Iraq, the population, if you look at the the uh, metrics for uh, what we would assume in a counterinsurgency we would need, we weren't even close to that. So it was, um, you know, just the conditions were ripe to let it get out of control. Yeah. In, uh, you know, it, it's that's a long discussion. <laughs> and I love that you keep going back to the Revolutionary War. I, I would say, you know, we did get help from the French, um, but the, uh, it, we did the same thing to the British. We attacked their soft networks. We attacked, they didn't necessarily need interpreters, but they had cultural advisors, people who were spying on their behalf and we went after them. So if we could bring the world's superpower to their knees at the time, fighting as revolutionaries from a position of weakness, we should just anticipate our enemies are gonna do it to us. And if we know they're gonna do it, we should proactively try to counter that strategy. Wow. You know, I've heard that comparison, but I never thought about the other side of the coin of that comparison, as you just noted. Um, so it, so it's not that in these countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and this conflict that we've been fighting for for two decades now, it's not that there weren't enough people that wanted their own freedom. It's just there were not a lot of people that could take the bold step that these interpreters did and sacrificed not only their own lives, but their families' lives to fight what was relatively a small percentage of bad guys within a very densely populated country. Yeah. I think also there, you know, 
the institutions were not necessarily uh, mature, absolutely, in Afghanistan uh, or even existent um, in many cases. And so the, the things that we take for granted in our country, right, with um, rule of law and the different institutions involved in that at echelon, right, at the local level, state level, national level, um, those had to be built and we were trying to build them from scratch. And if you think about the, you know, decades and centuries that we've been creating these institutions in our country and, and doing it to, you know, fit our culture. Um, and here we are, you know, coming in, parachuting in on top of, you know, Afghanistan and trying to build an Afghan national army that can, Stand on its own while also having legitimacy in the eyes of the people. I mean, that's uh, that's ambitious, I guess, would be to, to put it gently. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I don't want to say spoiler alert, but like you say, Baghdad Underground Railroad. I keep thinking of like tunnel systems that get them from the streets of Baghdad or the streets of Ramadi or Fallujah uh, and then get them to some safe place. Uh, what all did the Baghdad Underground Railroad entail? Yeah, so, well, the, the Underground Railroad is definitely, you know, in allusion to our, um, the, the United States history of the Underground Railroad with slavery. And, of course, there, there are many differences, um, but, the, but the parallels were striking. And, and, and that just happened to be what we called it at the time as well, because we knew you know, I know this is going to blow your mind, Phil, but there was a catch-22 in the system in our government. And so at the time, Embassy Baghdad, which was supposed to be the final step in the process for applying for a special immigrant visa, they declared that it was too dangerous to interview Iraqis in Baghdad. So they directed that Iraqis must go for their final interview to Amman, Jordan. Well, the Jordanians had closed the border to, because they had an Iraqi refugee crisis on their hands. So it, not only was this a bureaucratically just arcane, difficult process to figure out that, it, you know, it took my staff three months to figure out how to process one SIV packet. No Iraqi was ever going to figure that out. And so we started hammering away, chipping away on the bureaucracy and trying to navigate those channels. And then if they were fortunate enough to pass all the background checks, get a general officer letter of recommendation, have, you know, 12 months of time with us already, then they qualified and um, they would have to go for their interview in Amman. And so they had to come up with an alibi to get to Amman. And there really were only two, two ways to go to Amman at that time. It was either driving through Al Anbar province to the Jordanian border, which everybody called that road the highway of death. Um, even we didn't drive out there a lot. And that's, you know, Scott's uh, book about Echo and Ramadi is out along those that way. But it's not even close to as far out as you have to go to get to the Jordanian border. I mean, Al-Qaeda and Sunni insurgents controlled that area. It was very contested. And unless we had helicopter support or some sort of air platform providing it, uh, we weren't going to drive out there. It was crazy. So 
what a Rocky in a, you know, civilian beat up car is going to try to drive that road. It just was, would have been, you know, suicide. So the other option was go to Baghdad International Airport. And that was infested with uh, al Mahdi militia. And uh, they were looking for collaborators and they were running torture houses in the city, prosecuting a campaign of what we thought was government sponsored sectarian cleansing in many cases. So these interpreters were really adept at faking whether or not they were Sunni or Shia and being able to talk that lingo, depending on who was stopping them and questioning them. But then they had to come up with an alibi to get to Jordan. And if they were fortunate to get to the embassy in Jordan and to do that, they sold all of their possessions. They basically said goodbye to their friends and family forever. If they felt comfortable doing that, some of them just left under cover of darkness and were afraid that somebody might inadvertently slip if they knew they were leaving. So uh, then, then they'd pass that stop and they'd go on to the United States. And the final third of the book talks about that part, the, U, the America is what it's titled in the, in the second part of the book. And it, it goes into the sponsor experiences. It goes into the, the interpreter experiences attempting to assimilate and it, it really, uh, that's where a lot of the humor comes into the book because it's sort of a, a soap opera of uh, cultural mixing. Man, that is some crazy <laughs> And yeah, you're right. You laugh about the comedy or the, you know, the dark comedy that would be coming to the United States. They, yeah, they get here and then they're in Iraqi in America and, you know, beer drinking, smack talking, wrestling, watching Americans that don't understand the war see a guy from Iraq and, oh my gosh, that couldn't have been an easy bridge to cross for them once they get here. And this is the safe part. Yeah, that's, that's. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, many of them lived their lives like they were in a James Bond movie. It was insane. They would, you know, it, let's say they're going to the airport from Fob Justice, which was where we lived. They would have to, at a minimum, take two taxis. And they would take, the, take a taxi somewhere in the city. They'd get out, walk into a building, walk out the back of the building and quickly try to jump in another taxi and lose any tail that might be on them. So, and that was just, normal for them. They were, you know, going home. They wouldn't actually go home. They would talk in code. They would, um, you know, call their brother and they would meet at some third location somewhere and not even tell their family they were going to be there and then just show up and surprise their family. It was, you know, and, and then they'd be gone, you know, a few hours later, or they might stay a couple days and then, then leave and come back. But it was super dangerous for them. And yeah, they were great patriots leaving their families behind, but they always knew if they, they were putting their families at risk if they stayed, because as soon as it was found out they were working for the occupation, uh, their families were at risk of kidnapping, at risk of torture and death. And, and it was just very dangerous. Mm. And certainly, as you pointed out, not made any easier by the Department of Defense. Um, you and I could riff also offline for hours about the countless <laughs> things that Big Army, Big Navy came down as a rule that really made no sense when you got on the street level. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. 
Huh. Well, it, hey, in DOD's in DOD's defense, that was a State Department rule, so uh, oh. yeah, they didn't have a plan that one. <laughs> Our Uncle Sam doesn't always make our life easier, does he? On any level, whether it's state, whether it's defense. Yeah, man, government. Ah, All right. Conversation for another day. Uh, Let me chat with you real quick now. I I don't want to give away too much of the book because you've really done a great job at painting a picture of the layers that this book will get into. But again, we're talking about the book Baghdad Underground Railroad. Retired Colonel Steve Miska and... um, I want to chat real quick, just some follow-up questions. Um, As we look down the pathway of withdrawal from Afghanistan, and certainly to a greater extent, we've already withdrawn from Baghdad and Iraq, but as we look at officially leaving with maybe just a few hundred people or under a thousand people left behind to serve as, you know, train, advise, and assist, are there lessons? Was it worth it? I think of just this last weekend, Memorial Day, and um, you know, my good buddy took his last step in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And then I look and I see the Taliban's an official political party in Afghanistan, that we have to negotiate at times with them peace treaties when Ronnie described it as fighting season occasionally, when the weather got warm and they'd go on, you know, they'd go dig out their guns again that they'd buried for the winter. What are the lessons? Was it worth it? Yeah, well, so I, I I hope we've learned to value our our local national partners. That's the one that I really emphasize in the book, and that my a lot of my consulting work is done in that space. it's It's very much uh, policy and research development to try to because we can do better. It's absolutely in our interest to do better. And, um, but we do, you know, we're, we're, I'm working with a lot of nonprofits and others in in the space. If we do evacuate our Afghans, um, what do we need to have set in place here in the United States to receive them, to complement the government resettlement agencies? And, and how have we done that in the past? And amazingly, I know this will probably shock you, Phil, but the lessons learned from the evacuation of 130,000 Vietnamese uh, after the fall of Saigon in 1975. Um, many of those lessons were relearned again when we evacuated Kurds in 1996. Um, I think we probably got a little bit better with, with the Kosovars in 1999 since it was so recent. But um, we're trying to really emphasize those lessons learned and show that We've done this before. We can absolutely live up to our values by doing it again. And our society, this is this is something that I believe it's we should ask the American people to help with. Um, we we had a draft that ended in 1973, so we're almost 50 years beyond that now, and we've got this professional force where only 25% of military-aged males even qualify to serve nowadays. And we're, there's this growing civil military gap, and we have not asked a lot of the American people. And so I would hope that we would ask them to be a part of receiving Afghan interpreters and families should they be fortunate enough to get here. I, I document three of those people in the book, um, these just courageous women who open their doors and welcome young Arab males into their homes 
it was hard. It was challenging. But all to a T, they, and, and quite frankly, I had no idea how much I was really asking them, but they all say they would do it over again, that it was super hard, but it was one of the most meaningful things they'd ever done in their life. And it's really reflects well on us as Americans that, you know, people are willing to step up in that way. Um, but hmm. yeah, the broader lessons learned from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, I think that's, that's like a whole nother call. Um, but those are the ones that I, I'm really dialed in on, you know, just how we can strategically protect our soft networks better, uh, because I know we can. Wow. And you brought up a bullet point there that I failed to ask earlier, but is incredible. And that is the fact that you could serve your country by doing what some of the military spouses and the mothers have done by sponsoring and hosting a friend, uh, uh, one of our advocates, one of our allies, one of the foreign military interpreters. Wow, never thought about that. And what a great, great way to sum up service to our country. Um, as a colonel, you're an officer. I was enlisted. So this next question is going to be one of those types I reserve for you smart guys with the stars and the bars. <laughs> and I mean that like, All right. you know. I mean. <laughs> You, you know that I don't care about rank. Even in the military, I got in trouble for not really caring about rank. But uh, let's go for it. All right. I'm going to start with my pencil for this one. But when we look at how we fight terrorism around the country, around the world, there's a certain strategy. And it, I've heard it quoted before as uh, the military always fights the next war with the previous war's technology. Hmm. Is there a need, in your opinion, for the DOD to reevaluate how we approach global conflicts, how we approach these global terror networks? We're rolling with like huge battalions and big pieces of equipment and a force that is unmatched in the world, both with technology and with, you know, the human intelligence and, 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 and the grit of the American fighter. But should we be looking at doing this with tanks and aircraft carriers and things like that? Or does the DOD need to embrace kind of what you mentioned in this book, the way the interpreters would sit around and monitor social media and just watch the television networks and hear what was being chatted about in uh, the online forums? Shouldn't we be embracing fighting these enemy forces with dark arts and technology rather than tanks and bombs? Mm, I think we we're moving in that direction. And, um, you know, to, to, to DOD's credit, um, and, and our defense contracting establishment, you know, I, I got about three dozen interpreters out, um, in the underground railroad, our team, you know, got them to the U S and helped them. And many of them were able to then bring their families over. Six of the, at least six of the guys that I know of, because I haven't been able to get in touch with all of them, but six of them enlisted in either the army or Marines. And then some of them deployed back to combat as combat linguists, which we vitally need. Um, in that role, they had security clearances going in and they could operate at, at various levels, but who better to help us in our conflicts. And then the story gets even better, Phil, because two of those guys, served out their enlistment, went to work for a defense contractor in Tampa, and they were doing counter ISIS messaging on social media during the whole ISIS campaign. You know, no native born American would be able to do what those guys do. So it's just embracing, um, 
you know, a combination of cultural learning with technology, as you indicate with your question, I think is absolutely a part of the wave of the future in terms of how we, we go to war. And um, these guys are, are soft networks are invaluable in that regard. They're, they're who I want to have on my left and right shoulder. I mean, they, they, I did, you know, while I was there, they were constantly, you know, giving us cues and indicators as to what we should really be focused in on. It, you know, they, you know, in English say, yes, sir, he's lying to you. And so that, that helps me know how to then operate with this particular individual I'm interacting with. Mm. That's amazing. And that's actually kind of comforting to hear, although it's an uncomfortable conversation and it's certainly, you know, uh, just an uncomfortable, disgusting reality that we live through, uh, you know, with all these terror groups, whether it's Africa or whether it's the Middle East. I mean, there's just so much out there. It's comforting to hear that you have seen and think it is leaning in that direction because forever I've been frustrated when I see the news of just, you know, battalion after battalion and all these, you know, um, up armored vehicles and all the like hardware we bring, but yet who's getting on Facebook convincing or who's getting on their social media sites, convincing them internally to sow discord. Like we see so easily sown in our country on our social media. Why aren't we trying to penetrate them that way? And that's cool to hear that that's already being done. And that is of course covered uh, in part in the book, Baghdad underground railroad. Um, last question uh, is kind of just sort of, I, I guess I'm going to lean a little bit on the fact that you're the executive director of First Amendment Voice, the nonpartisan effort to reinvigorate civic awareness about First Amendment issues. And the First Amendment comes into play when we talk about just what we were talking about, how to communicate online in this digital forum. But there's so much disinformation and misinformation, and we've seen social media hijacked sometimes by foreign entities. Does the First Amendment give cover to the jerks and the terrorists who fuel anger and anarchy and mind you i've just i've just suggested we do that in foreign countries <laughs> but does our first amendment give cover to the jerks that want to do that here yeah i think you know it it's a challenging space the first amendment it's it's complex right you're you're talking about freedom of us uh, of speech right now but there's you know, the, the First Amendment's five freedoms all woven into one in 45 words. It's pretty uh, succinct, you know, between freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble or protest, as we more commonly call it, and uh, freedom to petition the government for grievance. All of that is in the First Amendment, and sometimes it can be in conflict. Different elements of it can be in conflict with each other. Um, but in the free speech space, it's, you know, Technology is changing the way we consume our information. Technology allows us to do a very human thing, curate our information so that we can weed out things we don't want to hear, right? Maybe we never have to hear something we disagree with if we're able to curate it to such a level, you know, on our Twitter feed or Facebook or wherever. And so um, that's the space that we explore with First Amendment Voice, we we just released a um, a white paper not too long ago that uh, Kelly Kehoe, our our blog writer and I co-authored, called "Pandemic of Polarization," and in it we looked at how our two-party system, how technology, 
specifically in the social media space, but also in the, the media space writ large, right? How technology is uh, helping diversify the media landscape and that contributes to polarization as media drifts left or right um, without, a, without a lot of folks, organizations left in the center. Um, and so that uh, also contributes and plays a role. It's, um, it's really dynamic. I don't, you know, we have a, a really strong tradition in our country of defending free speech. The ACLU defended Nazis right after World War II. Uh, famously, um, I've been heartened by the response that I've seen to people when they see, you know, um, white supremacists come to town and they want to hold a demonstration. And then this small town will turn out 10 times as many counter demonstrators to peacefully push back against that, that message that they disagree with. And that ultimately is what the First Amendment is all about. It's if you don't like speech, hate speech, or uh, whatever the divisive thing is that you feel strongly about, then counter it with better speech. We don't need less disagreement. We just need better disagreement, learning how to disagree better with each other. Mm. So well said. And I will kind of say that I, I sort of hear in that between the lines too. consume information you don't necessarily agree with consume viewpoints that are opposite to what are your own if you really Absolutely. want to learn something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many people get their news from one source. It's really common. And, and it's, you know, that's why I actually like Twitter. I use Twitter to get multiple sources to verify, just to see, you know, is, is because the confirmation bias is so strong for all of us. And we always we get that little dopamine hit every time we get something that we agree with. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. And what we need is we need disagreement. We need alternative points of view to cause us to think better and to get out of our comfort zone and to really understand each other better. And so anyway, the and, and that's a, another thing about, you know, freedom of speech. It's it's also being able to listen and seek understanding maybe and with with reserve judgment prior to jumping to conclusions and so anyway it's all you know it's civics 101 but but we've lost a lot of that education in our country and so what we try to do at, at first amendment voice is uh educate uh give people tools for engagement in the public square but ultimately in, inspire them that the only way our government works is with an active citizenry and, uh, and we, we all play a role in that. Mm-hmm. Well, you talked about inspiration and I'll say this, this book is certainly inspiring. The Baghdad Underground Railroad, Saving American Allies in Iraq, U.S. Army retired Colonel Steve Miska. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this, man. I could riff with you all day about the nuances of what you saw over there on the street versus what the average American really knows and thinks about and what we talk about online uh, in social media. Uh, just so many ways to go, but I'll just say that uh, this book, uh, just a great, great summer beach read if you like that military style. Baghdad Underground Railroad. Road, saving American allies in Iraq. Steve, really appreciate your time. Phil, thank you. And, and you know, I forgot to mention that proceeds for the book go to a veteran nonprofit. It's U.S. Veteran Artists Alliance, and they help veterans 
learn to be writers, screenwriters, artists of many different types. And so it goes for a good cause. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. All right, Phil. Thanks. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.